0: Merciful Father, gracious God, Lord, thank you that you are good. We proclaim that with the words that we sang, that you are good. Lord, the world around us may be spinning, and we may not call it good, but Lord, you are. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we have the opportunity to gather today. And Lord, as we pause in these moments Lord, we thank you for the value of life. God, this Sunday is a sanctity of human life Sunday, and Lord, we thank you for those that around us. We thank you for the life represented in this place, the life represented online, Lord, far beyond these walls around the world, the young, the old, the unborn. God, we pray, God, for life and life to the full for each one. Jesus, I pray that we would be people of hope, uh, people who not only speak of life, but speak life and walk in the ways that you've called us to. And Jesus, as you call the little children to yourself, God, just think of each person here. God, whatever burdens or heaviness or trials or situations, God, whatever it is, Lord, that each person faces. Pray that we would set that before you. God, we would say help. And we'd also say thanks. So, Lord, this morning, thank you for being a good Father. And Lord, may you just continue to move in our time together. We pray this in your strong, powerful, and wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for joining us this morning and uh, worshiping, and it's so good to have you here. My name is Chris. If I've not yet had the chance to meet you, I'm so thankful that you're here, and I look forward to hopefully meeting you in the future. For those joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. Wherever you may be, whether that's local or far away, we're so thankful that you are here. As I mentioned, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I was thinking about the coming week that's ahead of us, or really ahead of me and ahead of a number of you as I'll be uh, overseeing in two different funerals this week. This coming Saturday at 11 o'clock will be Dee Converse's service here at the church. And many of you knew and loved Dee. Dee passed away just short of her 93rd birthday. And Dee served wholeheartedly right up until the end. She was serving here as a Stephen minister. She had a group of ladies, a group of widows um, at her house Uh, to care for, to love on, and so much more that I'm finding out as I continue to talk with her family and friends. And Dee's life is important. Also, this week, tomorrow, we're going to be celebrating the life of Kobe Williams. And some of you have heard of Kobe. Some of you have met Kobe. Kobe, day 28 in his life, um, he's, let me just start, he is the son of Ross and Connie Williams. And Ross right now is serving in our kids' ministry. But Kobe, on day 28, his birth, one of his birth parents shook him violently and threw him. And Kobe had uh, shaken baby syndrome. And as he was in the hospital, the doctors uh, invited Ross and Connie to come because they knew of Ross and Connie and them adopting children with special needs into their home. And they told Ross and Connie that Kobe would not live long enough to make it out of the hospital. At eight weeks old, he went home with Ross and Connie, and at age 23, he passed away this past week. 23 years, a picture of another life that is valuable, that is made in the image of God. And so this week, I invite you to pray for Dee's family and in uh, the services here at 11. Pray for Kobe's family, and Kobe's service will be next door at 2 o'clock tomorrow. To be praying for them and invite you to really continue to share your love and compassion and care, and also around you, the person next to you, across from you, across this room, made in the image of God, and are extremely valuable. And we can quickly forget that because we can look at our own world, our own situation, ourself, and we can forget about that value. And so I want to remind you today uh, just to pause and to give thanks to God for life and in the life that God offers. And with that, we are moving on in our series, which really is about life. The series is entitled, You Are Not Your Own. And it's from a passage that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, where he said this. He said, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies as I spoke last week, is that that is really a countercultural idea because we in our current society in the, the last number of years and moving forward, it is about me. It is about my well-being. It is about my health and wealth and well-being and also about my identity, looking within myself and finding who I really am. But Paul, in this statement, this countercultural statement, then and now, is really saying, hey, your calling is much higher than just you. Your identity is much more than anything you'll find within you. That there's a greater calling and a greater purpose and a greater identity found in Christ because you've been bought at a price. Now, two, I also said is that if you are not a follower of Jesus, you are your own. And you run at your identity. You run at you're calling at your purpose, the direction that you're called to. But if you align your life with Christ, you follow Him as your Lord and Savior, then that passage is for you. You're bought with a price. So, therefore, we're to honor God with our bodies. So, as we walk through the series, You're Not Your Own, we're looking at this grand narrative of Scripture. We're flying through Genesis to Revelation in six weeks. Last week, we looked at creation, the creation stories found in. Chapter one and chapter two, and hopefully you were able to look at those and see what is similar and what is different, how one is really this far out view, and then there's another one that is much closer, these two different narratives that are in there describing creation. And we saw a God who took what was empty and dark and formless and uninhabitable, what is chaos, and how he brought order to it. And every day described more and more order in this creative process. And what he said after each day was that it was good. And then finally, at the very end, he said it was very good. Humanity was in relationship with the Creator God. There was no shame. And then we shift to chapter three. Years ago, I began a message by playing Louis Armstrong's song, What a Wonderful Life. And he sings this well known song talking about the beauty in creation, the beauty in the earth, the beauty in humans. But while this song was playing, on the screen there were images of war, and of death, and of famine, and of brokenness, and it felt really awkward, right? We're hearing this beautiful song, and we're seeing these images, and there was a tension in that moment, and this tension is a very real thing in the world we live in today, both you and I, we look at the world around us and we see the potential, we see the beauty, we see the good, but we also see the mess. We see the pain, the heartbreak, the disappointment letdown. down. There is this tension that we exist in as human beings that was there in the beginning, here now, and will be there tomorrow. I love the book of Genesis because it addresses this tension. Now, Genesis is a book that, when you read it, you can read it a lot of different ways. We talked last week about not just coming to the Scripture on our own terms, but coming to Scripture in the terms that the author is asking us to come, to try to figure out what is the historical context, what is the literary context of this passage, And last week, I encourage you not just to think about how the world was made, but rather why the world was made. And the same thing here today is when we look at this next chapter, that you don't just ask how questions, you ask why questions. Why is this included? Why is this put together in the way that it is? Now, I wanna throw a disclaimer out there for chapter three. If you did not grow up in the church, chapter three is really bizarre. And maybe if you grew up in the church, Chapter 3 is still very bizarre. And this is why. Because there is a talking serpent who is upright, okay? There is a seemingly magical tree with some really powerful fruit. And there's naked people who do not realize that they're naked until they realize that they're naked, right? So when we look at this text, some of you come to this text like it's a movie. You read the words, You picture it, and this is how it unfolded, just like a movie would, just like it's written. Others of you come to this text more in a poetic type of way, as this is a poetic picture of the beginning. Yet there's others who read this as ancient myth. And I don't mean myth as in something that's made up or not true, but rather a historical way of seeing how events unfolded. What I'm gonna ask you today is whatever one or two that you embrace or reject, I'm going to ask you just to take that because you can go like this with it today and just say, all right, I'm going to set it here for the moment. And I want to ask the text to speak. I want to understand something that's coming out of that. So whatever you embrace or whatever you reject, you just set it and just say, all right, here we go. We're going to see what the text has to say. We're going to ask the author why it's here. So If you recall... Pre-chapter 1, chapter 1, there's chaos. And what God does is he creates and he brings order. And here we are in chapter 3 with chaos again. And to this point, God has given humanity the opportunity to take what he created as good, ordered reality, and to continue to build good upon it. He said, Fill the earth, subdue it, bring dominion over it. This does not mean to abuse the earth. It does not mean to destroy creation. It means to steward it. To continue to bring about good, this creative order. And in the garden, everything is good, including a tree that we find there. And this tree is referred to as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, nowhere in Scripture does it say that this tree itself was evil. We assume it's evil because of the results of it. But I want us to think about this tree and to think about why the results came. The eating of this tree was not because of the nature of the tree, rather because of the disobedience of what God said about not eating that tree. Because even if this tree was titled the tree of puppy dogs, baby giggles, rainbow unicorns, and ice cream, and God said, don't eat of that tree, it still would have been sin. It still would have been rejection. We ask the question of like, well, why was this tree there? Why would God put that there? I love what John Collins wrote. He said, God intended through this tree, humans would come to know good and evil, either from above as masters of temptation or from below as slaves to sin what he's saying. And there was a choice. There was a choice that they could believe God. They could believe that what was created was good and was very good. And God said, trust me, this is not good. And they would master that temptation or they would redefine good for themselves and they would become slaves to sin. The choice. And it's a choice very much like the choices that we make today. When we look at what God has said, and he said, this is good, and we redefine good, are we not like Adam and Eve? I think Adam and Eve believed they were doing good. They believed that they were making the right choice and would even improve upon their relationship with God they were redefining good because they weren't trusting in what God had to say. They gave in to temptation. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we have this complex layer of a tempter coming into the picture. Verse 1 of Genesis 3 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. We see throughout Scripture that the serpent is referenced in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament as Satan, the devil, Lucifer, the evil one. In Revelation, which ends the, the other end of what we have here, this collection of different books, in Revelation 12, it says that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So from the very beginning to the very end of Scripture, we have the serpent, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, leading people astray. How? Well, that's the rest of verse one here. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Catch it. It's underlined. You probably got it. This is the question. Did God really say? Same temptation today. God really say that? Are you sure you heard that right? Are you sure you read that right? Are you sure that's the way it's supposed to be? Are you sure that didn't change at some point? I mean, this is the most common attack to just undermine, to just get under a little bit. Are you sure? The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, reminding the church at Corinth, he says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. say in church, pay attention. I I think you're being deceived. And it's that classic illustration is that if I'm heading this direction and I'm walking that way towards Jesus, and if there's just a slight change to the right and I'm still heading that general direction, if I go long enough, I'm going to be far away from the point that I intended. Did God really say this? Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's truth sprinkled in there. I mean, if it was just a blatant lie, they, along with us, would be like, oh, yeah. That's a lie. I'm walking away from that. But there is truth sprinkled in there. Yep, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. Absolutely. That was a result. And there is this lie that the, the enemy puts out, really saying two different things, is that sin is not bad and God is not good. He, maybe doing that one thing or thinking that one thing or saying that one thing that some consider our sin Maybe it's not so bad, and maybe the truth is, is that God is withholding something good from me. This was the lie from the serpent in Genesis 3, and it's a lie we wrestle with today. Maybe sin's not that bad. Maybe God's not that good. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Let's just pause momentarily here to talk about temptation. Temptation is something we all face, every single one of us. And there's a process that is faced here in the garden that Jesus faced and we face as well. First, it starts with the lust of the flesh. All of us have been created with innate desires for food, for drink, for physical, all sorts of things, for relationship, for emotional. There's this lust of the flesh that's there. It's, there's this desire that's there that is God-given, but then it can quickly turn into a lust of the flesh. If I eat too much, if I drink too much, if I engage in certain relationships, whatever it may be, there's this lust of the flesh that can turn quickly. And when we have that desire, the next thing that happens is a lust of the eyes is that I have this desire, and then I start looking, I'm like, ah, uh, yep, that's it right there. And then I go for it. Find that thing, I have to have it, I obsess over it. And then it goes to the lust of pride, because maybe when we start going towards that thing, or person, or whatever it may be, God's saying, that's not good. Then I start to have this lust of pride of like, well, God, I think it is good. I think it is okay. And I'm gonna justify it. And so then I slip into this lust of pride. Jesus was tempted in the same way as I mentioned. Think of how he was tempted. The enemy told him to turn stones into bread. This was the lust of the flesh. You're hungry. Just change these stones to bread. The second temptation he faced was this lust of the eyes is that, hey, just worship me, the enemy was saying to him, Satan was saying to him. And then you can have all the kingdoms of the world. The last thing was this lust of pride where Satan said to him, hey, just throw yourself off. I mean, God said he's going to save you. He cares about you, right? See if he really does. You find out for sure. John wrote these words in 1 John. He said, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John here is saying, everything that's in the world, all these different lusts, they're going to pass away. They are alluring. They are true temptations. Jesus legit was tempted. He was. You're tempted. I'm tempted. It's what we do with it. Do we give in to that? Because temptation is not a sin. Giving in to that temptation is the sin. And it's a matter of trust. Temptation is this question of trust. So later on, when you're tempted in whatever way you're going to be tempted in, ask the question, do I trust God? Do I trust his good for me? Or do I trust my own definition of what is good? Now, sin is so much more than just breaking rules. Because what we can think about is that, well, I'm tempted, and I know I shouldn't do it, I'm going to control myself and then I'm great. That's such a a falling short of what sin is because sin is really violating the will of God, the heart of God, the good that he has for you and I. And I heard someone illustrate it this way. They, They talked about how as a parent, your child comes to you and says, hey, can I go ride my bike? Yeah, of course, go ride your bike. But remember, we live on a busy street. So what I'm asking you to do is, because we live on a busy street, because I love you, I want you to wear a helmet. And I want you to ride on the sidewalks around our neighborhood. But if you need to go across the street, I want you to look both ways. I was like, yeah, of course, sure. Out the door. A minute later, the parent looks outside and what's happening? No helmet, circles in the road, ignoring traffic, right? So what happens as a parent? For me, it's like, oh. were rules violated? Yeah. But there's so much more. There's a tension now in that relationship. I told you this, 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 this. And guess what? It's not just about the rules and controlling the situation. It's about the good of the child. This is the way it is with God. Is that We don't follow God's commands, Jesus' teachings, just because they're right, but rather because they're good. In fact, they're very good, and they're the best for our life. Not just because they're rules, but because it's good for us, the very best for us. Jesus calls us to walk in these ways. A sin, we don't have time to go into Depth with sin. This week in our questions that are linked, are going to be on social media and linked to the weekly, there's a really great video from the Bible Project on sin. And I encourage you to to listen to that, to watch that. But sin, just very briefly, when we give into that temptation, it has devastating effects. In my relationship with God. Now, God has a much more pure relationship than my frustration with my kid when he or she disobeys me. God is patient, but God is saying, I had the best in mind for you. And so it impacts this relationship with God. When we sin, it gets in the way of that relationship. There's tension there. When I sin, it impacts my heart and my mind as well because I've allowed sin in my life. But it is also impacting society around me. There's results of my choice of sin in my family and in my friends and in the world. Maybe in that moment, definitely sometime in the future. Scripture talks about what is hidden in the dark will be revealed by the light. Choosing sin is, in a way, its own punishment. This is the wages of sin is death. Eternally, absolutely, if Jesus, we don't confess our sins to Jesus, but it also destroys relationships and joy and peace. Verse 7 chapter 3. It says, Then their eyes, both of them, were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, as a kid, as a teen, maybe even as adults, when you've done something and your parent or spouse or whoever says, hey, did you do this? And you're like, oh, oh. It's like that shock moment of like, God knew what I did. And this is the opportunity, right, as a kid, as a teen, as an adult, to be honest you say, yep, I did that. But often we try to cover it. Let's see what the, the man and the woman do here. First, the man goes, after, or verse 12. He says, the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me, this, some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So who did the man blame? She did it, and oh yeah, if that's not enough, God, you put her here with me, Right? So it's not my fault. Men were pathetic. It's not my fault. It's hers and it's yours. So God goes, "All right, I'm going to go get some wisdom from the woman. She's going to confess." What does she say in verse 13? And the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this you've done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me and I ate." There is just deflection of blame all over the place. Oh, I'm innocent. Everyone else and everything else. See, what was very good, what was created order, returned to chaos. There was that broken relationship. And in verse 14, a curse is pronounced as a result of sin. But what I want us to notice is verse 15. And I want us to think that Adam and Eve were hiding because of their sin. And God pursued them in the garden. Notice that, don't miss that. That God did not just leave them, abandon them, kick them out without pursuing them. God went to them, said, hey, what's going on? In the second verse into this pronouncement of the curse, there's what is known as the proto-evangelism. It means the first gospel, the first good news. It took... God to say, hey, serpent, here's your curse. Okay, let's start to put this back together. The Lord says, I will put eminency, meaning hostility between you and the woman. This is towards the serpent and Mary. Between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head. This is this mortal wound, this final wounding to Satan because of the cross. And you will strike his heel. So this is a reference again to the cross of the Messiah being wounded on the cross. God says, we're going to start to put order back into this. says, let's start putting this plan of redemption and salvation back in its right place. It was chaos to order that was very good, to chaos to let's start building order back into this. And if you read on the, the rest of Genesis chapter 3, you find that there is results of sin, and there is chaos between relationships, and there is... A bent or kind of crooked nature that's within us that we're, we lean towards sin. Paul talks about that he wants to do good, but he just he leans towards sin later on in the New Testament. And things start to spiral out of control. Genesis chapter 4 through 11 on fast forward here. chapter four: Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children, they have conflict, and Cain kills Abel. Notice that violence is an immediate outcome of redefining good. And when you look at human history, throughout all of human history and recorded history, there are very few years where there are not massive conflicts between people groups or countries. Violence is at the core of rebellion. If you keep walking through, there's Lamech who he marries two different women, introducing polygamy to the world. And then he tells this really awkward, violent poem about revenge killing. And then in chapter 6, you have another odd story of the Nephilim, this wickedness in thought and action and just this destruction in the world. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And then you meet this individual named Noah who finds favor with God, who is righteous and upright. And God is so grieved. It's not out of anger that. Genesis tells us that the world was flooded. Remember how it started? Water's covering the earth. Here we are with Noah, water's covering the earth again, kind of a reset. And this righteous individual, he was gonna be the hope. He was gonna be this next season of renewal. But what we find in chapter nine, when Noah exits the ark, is Noah plants a vineyard. He gets drunk and then something really weird happens with his son. And at this point, as readers, supposed to stop and we're supposed to feel the brokenness. Something is not right. Something is not right. And for as much as we look at economic systems or governmental systems and uh, social systems of like, if we can get all these right, then everything will be good. we can just keep resetting these things, it'll be good. We're to realize that no, the problem is me. It's me, I'm the problem. And if I can be so bold, you're the problem. And it's sin in me and in you. It's me redefining my good, saying that that is good instead of trusting God for his good. And that we have this disease of sin that can only be resolved by Jesus. We see Genesis continue to unfold with chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel where they all just stay and say, we're going to be great instead of spreading throughout the earth. And it's at this point in the story where we realize that humans keep taking autonomy. They say, it's about me, it's me, 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 instead of surrendering to God. We're reminded that although the world is broken, God is not done with the world. He's not done with me, he's not done with you. Next week, we'll look at Genesis 12 and this beginning of mission, of restoration, of salvation. But before we wrap up here, I want us to return to chapter 3. I want us to notice verse 21. It's a post-curse here, post-fall. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. What were, th- what were they wearing before then, when they realized they were naked. They put fig leaves over them, right? Fig leaves are not going to last very long. Probably pretty pathetic covering, right? But what God does is he gives them garments of skin. In order to get skin, what has to happen? An animal has to die. Here's another picture of sacrifice early on in the book of Genesis. See, in ancient... Writings. If you were to reject someone, if you were to push them out, whether it's a family member, whether it's someone working for you, whoever it may be, what you would do is you would take their clothing and you would send them on their way as a, a sign of shame, a sign of rejection. God could have done that. Could have said, eh, "Have fun with your fig leaves," but He makes them garments of skin that require a sacrifice. And it's this picture, this foreshadowing of Jesus to come. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says this. It says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So God pursued Adam and Eve. He offered forgiveness. He didn't reject them. Paul writes about what Christ did on the cross for us. He said, in Galatians, he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Adam and Eve, in their direct rebellion against God, God did not reject them. That kid on the bike, hopefully that parent didn't just say, meh, whatever, good luck, kid. I don't think that parent rejected that child. God does not reject you no matter what that sin is, what that temptation is that you give into that becomes sin. He does not reject you. But we're reminded Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Paul said, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. So do we believe that God is good and that he's the one that gives good and perfect gifts? Or are we not satisfied like early humanity? Today we sang songs, "A Good, Good Father, The Goodness of God, and Graves to Gardens. a reminder of who God is. This reminder of the goodness of God. He didn't leave us in our condition. He didn't reject us, and he still does not. That he pursues us. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, from the Lord, said these words to the Israelites. He said, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. He says, now choose life, so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. Choose life. Saying, I'm setting before you life and death, blessings and curses, choose life. Because it impacts your life and it impacts your children's life. Go on. Listen to God's voice as it says. So as we wrap up our time here, I'm gonna ask you just to pause for a moment and to consider your life. Am I choosing life or am I choosing death? Am I choosing blessing? Am I choosing curses? Am I choosing God's good or my good? Am I trusting or am I doubting? Do I walk in faith or am I walking without faith? Would you take a moment And whatever the space is, maybe it's just a time just to pause and breathe and listen. Maybe it's a time of confession. And maybe it's a time of of saying, thank you, God, for not abandoning me. Whatever it may be, you just take a moment, pause, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the choices that you give to us. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that you give to us. That you don't force us to love you, but God, you give us the opportunity to love you by our obedience. God, by trusting you, by walking faithfully with you. Lord, by believing you. Lord, we thank you for what we find in the early pages of Scripture. God, a complex but yet so simple reminder. God, of your mercy, your forgiveness, grace, and in spite of our rejection. Lord, today, God, for those of us here, God may this be a moment of surrender. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not surrendered their life to you, not confessed their sin, in this moment that they would they would tell you they're sorry for their sin, that they're a sinner, that they confess that sin before you. That you forgive them of that sin. They would embrace your forgiveness and they would walk in the life that you call them to. God, for those of us that call ourselves followers of you, of Jesus, that we would be reminded, God, of your goodness, your faithfulness. And that there's some here that would once again tell you that they trust you, they believe in you. Lord, that they'll continue to walk in faith. Lord, thanks that you've not abandoned us. Thank you for your presence and your mercy and your love. Jesus, I pray that you would work in a mighty way in and through us, and we thank you for your faithfulness. You are good. We pray this in Jesus' a strong, powerful, and wonderful name. Amen.